welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and in this season, we are exploring systems theory and how that relates to our life in leadership. Indeed, how it can transform our lives in leadership. So the title for this season is Transforming Leadership, Managing Anxiety in Our Communities. I'm thrilled to welcome Steve Cuss, a pastor who is also the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. In this season, he and I will discuss his book as a way to unpack major components of systems theory as they relate to our life in leadership. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Welcome, friends. We are in the midst of a season on managing leadership anxiety, yours and theirs. And I've had as my guest conversationalist, Steve Cuss. It has been a joy to be in these conversations with you, Steve. And I was wondering if you might get us started by recapping where we've been. Really look at where we're headed right this minute. Oh, very good. Yeah, thank you, Ruth. Because if I recall our first episode, we actually took about 15 or 20 minutes to even get to a clear definition Mm -hmm. of systems theory and this whole idea But at the end of the day, uh, systems theory is nothing more and nothing less than the study of how anxiety spreads. So what we're really interested in is noticing and learning to notice uh, the spread of anxiety. And we always, 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 and and you've really hit this hard over these episodes, we always first start with ourselves. If you're pointing the finger at anxious people, systems theory is no help to you at all, and you'll be no help to the world. But if you can take responsibility for yourself, and pay attention to your own patterns of anxiety. And then, after doing that for a while, then you can start to notice it in groups. It gets really interesting because over time, you actually discover recurring predictable patterns of behavior. When a group spends enough time together, especially a family, but also a staff, uh, over time, they, they fall into predictable patterns. And that's the evidence that the whole group has kind of a level of anxiety that's keeping them stuck. One of the things that I think is very pertinent for what we're doing today is to remember that anxiety is a very broad word, but we're actually only talking about chronic anxiety, which is based on assumptions and false beliefs. And I think that's why you and I both, Ruth, have really put a lot of time into system theory and chronic anxiety, because if chronic anxiety is generated by false beliefs, then the gospel has a tremendous amount to say to it. And so that's why we reminded people early that trauma is a different kind of anxiety and grief is a different kind of anxiety. And it's also good to remind us that the kind of anxiety that requires psychiatric medicine is different than what we're talking about. And psychiatric medicine is a gift from God that I think we should avail ourselves of if we Mm -hmm. need it. So that would be a general recap. And then our, our rules have been that we try to first notice, then we name, okay, what, what's, and then we diffuse. And that's really where we, we pay attention to our soul and what the Lord's doing. So that would be a brief recap. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think maybe the uh, one other thing I might want you to say something about is the spaces. What are the four spaces that we're always working in? Yeah, yeah. So what what we've done in, in my organization is just is help people notice where anxiety is coming from. So the first space is the space inside me. You know, that's when I'm meeting with a critic and they're disappointed in me and I'm not aware that my need to please them is driving what's going on. That's the space in me. The good news, Ruth, is we all have 15 to 50 false needs, so plenty to die to on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, the second space is the space between me and the other. So if you've ever been a kid, if you've ever had a kid, or if you've ever been in a relationship of any kind, 
uh, you are very familiar with anxiety that spreads between you and another person. The third space is the space inside the other person, and that's when you cross over into their brain. You're worried about what they're thinking about. You're trying to think your way into their life, and uh, that's where assumptions really fly. And then the fourth space is the space between other people. This is the space where you either walk into a room and there's already something going on in that room, or sometimes you'll even notice it when you're the one in the room and somebody walks in and the whole temperature of the room changes. Yeah. And out of the four spaces, the, the, the third one is the only one we cannot do anything about. Only God can change another person. And so we try to t- train people to notice when you've crossed into third space and just, you know, set that person free. And so, so the statement we use is uh, what somebody thinks is none of your business <laughs> until yeah. they decide that they want you to know it. Uh, and so this has been a difficult discipline in my life. I'll just say as, as a chronically enmeshed person, as an overfunctioner, as somebody who likes to be liked, I, I've spent most of my life in third space and learning to let go of it has been revolutionary in my life mm. for sure. Great. That's really helpful, I think, even as we head into this conversation today to be able to recognize the spaces and recognize what we can and cannot have any impact on. So today, we're taking a little bit of an interlude to look at a very important topic that came to me even as we were planning this whole season, and that is the question of whether or not systems theory is just a white thing. Is it just something that we white people have created to help ourselves and make ourselves feel better and give us a space to work in? So I've had a lot of curiosity around that question. And so today we've invited a couple of additional guests to be with Steve and I. First of all, we have uh, Pastor Marvin Williams, who is the pastor of Trinity Church in Lansing, Michigan. And Marvin is someone who's been doing his doctoral work on systems theory in non-majority spaces. Welcome, Marvin. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're pastoring, what your context is, and what the work is that you're doing right now? Yeah, thank you, Ruth. Um, And it's great to be with you and and Steve, my good friend. Again, Marvin Williams, and uh, I'm a pastor in Lansing, Michigan. The church is Trinity Church, and the church is a majority church. And if you could see me, you probably would see that I'm black. I'm I'm a black man. leading and mm-hmm. serving in a majority space mm-hmm. and uh it's been it's been great i've learned a lot uh, all of the spaces that steve talked about is uh, has been a part of my uh my uh time uh, at trinity church as you mentioned i'm working on a doctorate from uh, at fuller and uh the the topic i'm going after it's a, kind of a mouthful but it's uh, you'll 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 get the gist of it it's mm-hmm. uh, my whole black self how to help black men who are worshiping, serving, and leading in a majority spaces, how to help them, uh, how to help us uh, actually grow in courage, resiliency, and influence through self-differentiation. Mm-hmm. Self-differentiation is a systems theory phrase and word. And, and again, I'm still a novice at this, but it has revolutionized my thinking. It has lowered my anxiety, and it has allowed me to show up differently in spaces where typically I would probably have anxiety. So um, that's a little bit about myself. Oh, Marvin, that sounds like such valuable work, and I cannot wait until it becomes something that we can all read and learn from. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We're also joined today by one of our staff members, Reverend Tina Harris, and she is our new cultivator of community and connection, which means that she is really leading 
out administratively and pastorally in our transforming communities, our two-year experience of formation for pastors and Christian leaders. And Tina um, is ordained within the United Methodist Church, but she also is an attorney who has worked in areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and she is fully empowered within our organization to help us in those areas as well. So, Tina, tell us a little bit about your context and where you find yourself vocationally these days and and the journey that's brought you here. Sure. And Ruth, um, thank you for the introduction. I just wanted to mention that I've only been here about two months (laughs) in this new role. (laughs) And so uh, forgive me in advance, uh, but I'm learning as I go. I was first introduced to doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work um, while practicing about 20 years ago. And uh, it was at the time, I was one of the first people in the country who were doing uh, that kind of work at a law firm. At that time, law firms and banks were the ones who were sort of at the end of the rope uh, or taking their the longest amount of time in order to get on um, to realize how important uh, diversity was. Um, They've made great strides since then. God called me into ministry after that. And so I went from being a lawyer to serving as a pastor and had an opportunity to do that in lots of different areas. As part of that journey, though, I came face to face with part of my growing edge is that I was uh, getting into people pleasing quite a bit. And so as I've been on the healing journey from that, I was introduced to some of this systems work um, as part of it. And so I'm really interested in seeing where this uh, conversation will go today, but also the work that Mark is working on, I think is going to be so important um, for churches and for communities and for families all across this nation. So I'm excited to be here. Oh, beautiful. Well, I am very excited about this little community that has gathered to talk about this important subject. And may the Lord be with us today and guide us in our conversations to, to talk about the most important things that can be talked about in the short period of time that we have. Let's start by talking just in general, and maybe Marvin, you could get us started on this, about how an understanding of systems theory might change when we are, or be different when we're in a majority versus a non-majority space. What are you discovering about that? What are you learning about that in your work? Yeah, so, so when I, when I uh, gave my proposal, and, uh, and I'm still working on the proposal, I'm working through it right now, but my advisor uh, Cindy Lee, when she got the proposal, she asked me a question. And that question was, have your elders support, do your elders support this particular project? And and so, I I mean, they've supported me throughout my education. And so, so again, I asked why. She said, well, it's important for, it, it's important for you to get their, uh, their support because and this is what she said. She's an she's an Asian woman who says sometimes white people become a little bit anxious using mm-hmm. our word, become anxious when they're af- when affinity groups gather together. So because my my work is kind of steered toward black men, she was she she wanted to make sure that I didn't get so far down the road that uh, without the support, which is ironic which, in a sense, is asking me to differentiate. I'm, I, I have to differentiate and say, well, what does it matter that I get their support? Because this is the work that I'm doing. This is the work that God has called me to do. So even in writing something like this, there is walking through the, the, the marshes of, 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 of how to show up and show up in an honest way. 
I think there's, again, as Steve mentioned, knowing the anxiety in me and what causes, what triggers the anxiety in me when I walk into a majority, uh, a majority room. So I'm learning to find out a lot about myself. What's triggering? Am I, um, am I smart enough to be in this room? Do I have to code switch? Uh, do I have mm. to talk a certain way? Do I have to be a certain way so that the majority is they're not afraid of me as I walk into a room? Will they accept me if I go hood or street using slang? And and again, that's that's a part of who I am. And um, and so so I'm learning a lot about how I show up. And it's not so much about the room anymore. Mm. It really is about me as a black man showing up with someone who is living according to my guiding principles, my values, my identity in Christ. And and I'm coming to the place where, as uh, Peter Scazzaro says, well, I really don't care what other people think. Now, I really do care, but um, it's not driving me anymore. It's not shaping how I show up, my words, and and so those are those are a few things. I, there's a lot, but those are a few things that yeah. come to mind right away. Well, and so it sounds like what the answer to the question that I began with was: Is systems theory just a white thing? And it sounds like you're saying no. Systems theory is not just a white thing. It can be pl- applied in really important ways in other cultures as well. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I don't think systems, systems theory and particularly self-differentiation in my case is a white thing mm-hmm. or majority thing. All you got to do is look in scripture and you see. So, so once I started down this road, you began to see systems theory and differentiation literally all over the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it in Jesus's life when he's 12 years old, you know, like he tells his mother and father, like, hey, I got to be about my father's mm-hmm. business. And I understand you were looking for me, but Jesus differentiated in that moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when he is when he's teaching and his mother and brothers and sisters are outside and like and they said, well, your mother and your 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 siblings are outside. Jesus says, listen, I understand. And he's differentiating. I have to be about my father's will. So if if we say that it's predominantly a white thing or majority thing, then we got to get Jesus out of the way because mm-hmm. Jesus differenti- differentiates literally all over the place. Mm-hmm. And um, and so so I, I would I would beg to differ to say, no, it's not mm-hmm. a, a white thing or majority thing. It really is a human thing that I think every single person goes through. That's great. Somebody should have said yes. amen right there. Yeah, but yeah. I, <laughs> I know. Like, I'm a humming. Yes. Amen, brother. Amen. Help the audience. That's right. Help the brother. I'm the most stoic human you've ever met. I'll give a hearty, hearty, quiet amen to that. Marvin, can we um, go back, though? You said something that I don't want us to slide past. Okay. You talked about code switching, and yep. so code switching, and I, I just, I, I thought we would talk about it, so I happened to have a definition uh, <laughs> from the Harvard like, Business Review. Yes, like a true yes. attorney, um, just thought Tina. Because it is so important in yeah. our experience, but that is a kind of behavioral adjustment that is casually referred to as code switching, and so it has been a strategy for people of color to successfully navigate inter- interracial interactions and has large implications for 
the people of colors, their well-being, their economic advancement, and even physical survival. I really do see that code switching has been a means of survival um, for people of color in, in this country. And so when you talk about anxiety uh, and code switching, would you say that anxiety led to the code switching or vice versa? Or is code switching a way for us to try to navigate the anxiety that's in the room? Man, I, th- I think that's a symbiotic. It's a symbiotic relationship. I think it goes both ways. It, you walk into a room. I've, I've been in I've, I've been the only African-American in many rooms, in many spaces. And um, and so so my thought goes to what are they going to think about me? And are they if I if I use a certain kind of dialect in my language Will they immediately determine that I am not what what they what they want me to be? So, you know, is he is he from, you know, is he from the hood using that slang? And and I have to make sure that, hey, listen, I know how to parse my Greek verbs. I know how to parse my Hebrew verbs. I know the king's English, if you will. You know, if you want me to pull out some of my publications, I can do that. I've entered in that space in that way sometimes. But then by the same token, if there is someone who is asking questions, like, for instance, I preached at a majority church uh, a while back, and um, a man came up to me and said that I listened very carefully to what you had to say, and I didn't find one mistake. Now, he, didn't, he didn't say anything about the message itself, but now I'm, I have to code switch again to say, all right, let me, let me give you more than what I just gave you on the platform to prove to you that I know what I'm talking about and that I am, I am just as, you know, Tony Evans is not the only black preacher that people, you know, connect with. So, so again, I found myself going back and forth, going into the space, feeling anxious, having to show up as my true self. But then even after the fact, saying that I am, I want to go even further to prove that I belong in, in this space. It's unfortunate, but that's what I've had to do for the better part of my life. So Tina, you know you're the you're the pastor slash attorney on this podcast. Yes, Lord. Therefore, your <laughs> preference is to be the question asker. But we have questions for you as well. Oh, of course. <laughs> congratulations! Where have you experienced code switching? What's like that was an incredible you mean today, Steve? Because it's every day. <laughs> today, I would love to hear. I would love to hear today. That would be great. Sure. So I do think code switching is has been part of my everyday reality, but not just mine. I think people of color um, and perhaps anyone that's not in majority. So, for instance, if someone is in a lower socioeconomic status and grew up in, a, um, in that way and they're going into an area that's more affluent, they are going to try to figure out how can they fit in. But I also believe it is a form of bondage, right? And so I feel like breaking free of that, becoming aware of it and breaking free of it is part of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is lovely. Because I don't want to have the burden of trying to make everybody in the room um, understand me or accept me or like me because it's not possible. Um, And I have gotten to the point of 
being 50 African-American, I'm tall, like of being all that I am is that I feel like the room's missing out. If it's a majority room and I have to code switch, mm. they're missing out on yeah. parts of me that would bless them in a mighty way. Mm. And Amen. so <laughs> I just think that that happens. But Steve, it comes to everything from like if I'm Still to this day, I can go into certain stores and be followed around. Now, that's more of a microaggression, but where I feel like I now have to, you know, uh, sort of act a certain way to be sort of less of a threat. So the person might respond to me a a little differently. And that's really about safety and survival, not just sort of professional um, opportunities, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's where this conversation gets interesting. I'd I'd be interested to hear from Ruth and Marvin on this is we, we came in and this whole series of episodes is on chronic anxiety, which is built on assumption. I'm playing with an idea in real time here, but a lot of what Marvin and Tina are talking about is not as much their chronic anxiety. It's more crossing into trauma, acute anxiety, like actual when you're using words like survival, but, but it's crossing into the chronic anxiety of the majority culture because of our assumptions. Hmm. So, so some, in, in this case, it feels like the majority culture is generating chronic anxiety, but not always carrying it. I guess, Marvin or Ruth, what would be your take on that? Yeah, that, that's interesting because, you, again, Steve, uh, I mean, we would know this for those who have uh, kind of been around Bowen's uh, theory is that there, you know, you have this equilibrium and then someone breaks out of the equilibrium to say, it is time for me to change. It's time for me to show up as myself. And then guess what happens? The entire system yeah. becomes afraid mm-hmm. and says, you need to change back right. to yeah. what you were. And then at that point, the person has uh, has an opportunity to either enmesh or to or to to continue to live according to values and say, I am not going to change, but my changing is going to be for the good of the system. And and if we don't see the change, whether it's African-Americans or Latinos or what have you, if it if the majority culture doesn't see that it's good for the entire system, then you're, you're right. I think the probably the majority sometimes carry that anxiety because it's like, like the like African Americans are trying to be free from a lot of the stuff that they've carried, whether it's microaggressions or other things, and I think uh, the majority ends up, I think, sometimes carrying some of the anxiety uh, through that process. Does that does that does that make sense? What what I just said with regarding what Bowen kind of talked about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, Tina said it so so beautifully when she said, "If I hold back, then people, then this room is not going to benefit from the whole of who I am in my differentiated self." So that idea that that differentiation actually benefits everyone yeah. if we can accomplish it. And if we can, if the person who is changing resists the system's attempts to get them to change back, but instead yeah. continues to bring themselves, then yeah. they are blessing the whole system Absolutely. Um, versus allowing the system to stay stuck, which is very, very exciting, you know, in the current, you know, in some of the current conversations that we're in together. The other thing that struck me in your story, Marvin, was the fact that when that person came up and kind of challenged you, I mean, because they really were challenging you by saying, I didn't, you know, hear 
Well yeah. done. You got it all. You yes. know, you, I, I judged you to get it all right on That's my right. And that, yeah. Yes. And now you're, you know, living up to some standard that he has in his own mind. But it, it also occurred to me, though, that you probably had to manage your own anxiety in that moment, that there'd be so much that would want to rise up, you know, inside you at that moment, but that the ability to manage your own anxiety so that you actually had a choice versus just reacting. Mm in old ways or unexamined ways or whatever, the importance of the you, the you, the inside you space, there was the between you and that other person, but the inside you space, you were managing hopefully to some end that you felt good about. Yeah, and, and, and I tell you, it, it is, um, again, managing the anxiety, differentiating is such a, a difficult thing because we like to be liked, we love to be loved. Mm-hmm. And if I can, if I can change back or be the person they want me to be, then that lowers the anxiety in them. But what it does, it increases the anxiety in me because I'm now enmeshing and I'm losing my identity. That's right. And so, so you're absolutely right. I had to manage not only my, my, my reactivity, but also my anger, which Mm -hmm. is a part of the reactivity in that moment, because here, here is someone who is judging me, not knowing who you know who I am, and so, so in that moment, I had to manage anger and a lot of other things, and not not tell him you know what I what I wanted to tell him, mm-hmm. and uh, and let the Holy Spirit really control yeah. me. And 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 again, I think I think dealing with self differentiation and managing anxiety, it really does require. Um, again, you, you've talked about this, uh, you've written about this, solitude and silence and daily examine mm-hmm. to see where I differentiated without the fruit of the Spirit and where I've differentiated with the fruit of the Spirit and shown up as the the true person who is being shaped and changed by Jesus. And so, uh, again, I think a great observation, I did have to manage my anxiety in that moment. Yeah, and what, but what, get, what gets so exciting to think about is that the freedom— that you had because you weren't hopefully caught in your own anxiety, your own reactivity, your own anger, or your own desire to change back to be liked. You didn't get caught up in any of that. You were able then to have real choice, like real freedom about what you would do in a moment like that, which to me is what is so exciting, that sort of internal freedom that you have to make your own best choice in that moment from a differentiated self is a very exciting possibility for all of us. Yeah. So, well, Can I our ask a clarifying question oh, yes. though. Mm-hmm. So, for our listeners as well as for myself, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure I'm clear that when we're responding from that place, from that differentiated place, we can still set somebody straight, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Still there, yes. To the there, person that yes. was inappropriate. Yes. I appreciate that. Question okay, because, I just want to clarify. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because some sometimes like when you are in majority culture, there, there is a disturbing default that you just assume that this is the way things are. Like if I had had the audacity to go to Marvin, and ba- what I'm basically saying to Marvin is, as a white guy, I have decided that you're you're going to be okay. Like, well done. And it's very condescending. Yeah. Uh, but if Marvin had given me his anger, that might have been the gift I needed. And that's got to be so tough is, okay, when do I give you my anger to try to help you? Because I have grown a lot at the end of somebody's anger when I have been offensive without realizing it. Yeah. Uh, especially as a people pleaser, that'll, that'll help me grow. So I think you're onto something, Tina. Like part, part of what we're talking about here, 
you know, Ruth, we haven't yet covered, in all the things we've covered, <laughs> we haven't covered one of Bowen's great concepts, which is societal regression. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do take systems theory through the lens of an individual person. Societal regression is simply the idea that as we keep catching the anxiety that's around, we all get less able to connect with each other. We're seeing that happen now. Bowen, if he were alive today, would not be surprised at all mm-hmm. at the state of our culture. But what what's occurring to me is if the majority culture are primarily generating the anxiety and the non-majority are carrying it, culture will not heal and grow. What's required is those, and this is the same rule with individuals too, the rule is, okay, who's spreading it? How can they carry it instead of us all carry it? So the challenge in this conversation is, okay, how does the majority carry more of the anxiety that we're generating? And when we are ignorant or when we don't care about the plight of non-majority, um, it's, that's a tough spot for non-majority to be in for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, Steve, that's, a, again, a great question. And, and Tina kind of connected with what you're saying is that there's, um, you know, for, for again, I know we're talking a little bit more about the differentiation of self, but I mean that's kind of the space I'm working in. The thing that I've I've grown in is the ability. How do I remain close to the person that's causing the anxiety? So I can detach, and I've done that in the past. I've detached, and so I kind of look at it this way. I kind of look at it as if you're detaching, you're becoming Stokely Carmichael. If you're enmeshing, you're becoming uh, Uncle Tom. And so how do I not go to either pole but to say to Steve, hey, Steve, can we have a conversation? You, I, I love you, and I love uh, who God has created you to be. You actually caused some reactivity in me when yeah. we had this conversation. And I, I want you to know that it truly did, it truly angered me. But instead of me going away and distancing myself from you, can we have the very difficult conversation about some of the things maybe you said and you may not have been aware, or maybe your family of origin has now leaked into this present situation? Can we have a conversation about that? And leaving that conversation, not detached from each other, not angry with each other, but actually moving closer to each other because we were honest to have a very, very difficult conversation that could have actually distanced us even more. And I think, I think the majority has to be, the majority culture has to be willing to say, I am going to move toward and I'm not going to get tired. Okay, we're talking about this again. Oh, we're talking. No, we're moving toward each other, not away from each other. And and I think there may be a little bit more progress when we when we do that. And you're you were able to do that though without acting out. And exactly. Slapping. I mean, and and I think that's kind of where we are in the culture too right now is that we've seen a very public display of unbridled anger that actually was a disappointment to the person who committed the action. He disappointed himself. He disappointed, you know, maybe the most important one is himself, you know, because that was not the journey he wanted to be on either. So I I think that there's, you know, there's the not saying anything and just giving in, which would be becoming detached, which we don't want. There's this middle way, which is you remaining a self, 
but communicating honestly and openly with that person, staying yeah. connected while maintaining your sense of self. Yeah. And also not acting out and the reactivity that you named so well, not giving over to reactivity and being out of control in a way that actually even disappoints yourself and your own intentions in the world. Yeah, the other... There's a lot to navigate right in there, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) The other thing from a systems point of view is if Marvin is going to decide to make that move, I'm going to move toward this guy, I'm going to try to help him. Tell him how that felt. Yep. In systems theory, it's very helpful to be prepared for resistance so that when you get resistance, Mm -hmm. you're not surprised or or you don't fold. Because I would imagine... I was picturing what it would be like if Marvin had come to me and I had come back to Marvin and said, well, you just need to be less sensitive or some form of resistance with rather than me receiving what he's trying to help me with, I get combative, I get blamey. In systems theory, the genius is Marvin has already played out like chess the next three moves and he's already decided, okay, how far am I going to go? But but it's unusual for it to be a one-time move. I think that's important to talk about, particularly yeah. in this conversation. What's unfortunate is the non-majority uh, people still have to carry too much of the weight of getting this conversation to even be able to happen because what we, I think what we're seeing now is the conversation begins and it escalates and then it stops. But it's almost like you have to say, well, there it went escalating. We knew that would happen. Okay, let's all get through the escalation. Okay, now, now can we have this conversation? I know I've felt that in my life as a majority culture person, the initial defensiveness. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I learned about privilege, saying, well, I grew up poor. I'm not, pri-. but of course, what it means is I, my skin color affords me a phenomenal uh, benefit that I'm not aware of and so on. So I think that's also an important thing to talk about the nature of resistance. And then you, I think every person has to decide how far am I willing to go and not go. Um, and, and, and actually in differentiation, you, you talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, one of the models of mm. differentiation yeah. and the amount of resistance he faced and, and calmly pushed through is pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. Steve, I would just add in, you know, and in your book, when you talk about learning how to manage one's um, leadership anxiety, it's going to take years, yeah. many years. I would also like to encourage us to remember that us learning how to have a conversation and to really grow when it comes to being well connected with all of our brothers and sisters of every single um, background, ethnicity, context, etc. That is going to be a lifelong journey. And so I think sometimes we like it the quick fix and we think that we can have sort of the drive through solution um, that will have one good workshop and one training about mm-hmm. race in America. And then, you know, I'll listen to the Martin Luther King Day uh, sermon and then uh, everything's fine. It That is not at all how this is going to work. And so this is something that particularly my majority brothers and sisters, I really want them to hear that this is a lifelong journey for yeah. them to um, sort of understand and embrace uh, how we can walk this out together. Yeah, that uh, Tina, what you're saying and what Steve, what you're saying, I, I want to draft off that a little bit. It, it is it is Edwin Friedman's uh, a failure of nerve, right? Mm-hmm. So when there's resistance, when there's sabotage, we have a failure of nerve and we actually go back to we actually default, go back to the default. And that is, you know, we're detaching, we're enmeshing or whatever the default is. And so with just the title of the book, you know, it is it is going to be this zero to 100. Right. He talks about, 
you know, zero being, you know, someone who is less differentiated all the way to 100. And nobody ever gets to 100 per se, but we can improve daily and we can be conscious of what's happening on a daily basis. And so uh, so my 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 prayer for me and my prayer for us is that we would just simply grow. What is the next brave? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steve. What is the next brave and right thing that we can do in this uh, in this area of, of systems, uh, systems theory and self-differentiation? What not not the next 50, not the next one, just the next brave and right thing we can do today which I think will help the cause and move the ball down the field a little bit. Steve, that was American football idiom right there. Uh, I just mm. wanted you to know that. So. <laughs> <laughs> that that great? That's very helpful. Uh, yeah. but, I have two uh, more questions that I really want us to get to here, and our time is just about up. Could someone want perhaps, you know, Marvin or Tina, in a nutshell, talk about the difference between – managing chronic anxiety the way that we're talking about here and trauma. Steve has already alluded to trauma, but on my on our way back from spring break vacation this year, we stopped at the National Lynching Memorial, which was a very powerful experience. And one of the first things I thought of was the fact that it must be so different to deal with anxiety when you as a collective have had this kind of collective trauma in your past and just how different it would be to manage anxiety versus dealing with real trauma. And could one of you speak to the difference between managing chronic anxiety and managing trauma, real collective trauma or trauma in one's family or in one's personal life? So so that's, I think that's... um the the chronic anxiety is i think for for me a little bit more immediate it is something that that i have a level of of immediate control over my my reaction in this moment for me and and again i'm i'm i, I may be short on this um the 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 acute anxiety piece it it triggers and it could be a word or phrase mm-hmm. that 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 triggers it, and it is it is more than just an immediate reaction. It is mm-hmm. deep healing, deep work that needs to take place, and and I do need not just me, but I need a, a cadre of individuals helping me work through moments of of internal healing from those things and knowing then once I've healed or at least I'm on a, a longer journey to uh, uh, to healing I'm able to manage that a little bit better because I recognize my triggers I know what those are and I've had counsel and others to help me understand how to walk through that and again I could be wrong Steve you could help me with that but I know that the the chronic is a little bit more immediate acute is a little it, it has more of a of a longer life that um that the trigger may happen at any point i could be walking in a grocery store and and i i see um if, if my my mother and father were in an abusive relationship and i watched that i can just hear a man raise his voice just uh, just a little bit to his wife or to a significant other and it will cause me to go back to when i was 13 and it's like, whoa, I'm still living with that. And I need, I really do need inner healing. I do need someone else to gather around me to work through 
some of those difficult issues. And again, Steve, you can answer to that. I just, I, that's just from my own, you know, again, my, my own life, but my own, um, you know, kind of reading of, of that. So. So Ruth, I might not be answering your correct question mm-hmm. correctly. So mm-hmm. when you were asking the question, here's what came to mind mm-hmm. is that when I think about the collective experience and when there is yet another young black man who's been gunned down by yes, um, police. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. The response to mm-hmm. that, I think that there's a myriad of, of different responses, you know, and I believe in therapy, everybody should get it. I wish it was free. But that building resilience is something that I think is learned at a, at a at a very early age and the resilience can come in turn in, in things like art and things like singing. There's a reason why people go to um, protest and sing because there is such power in that. I think joy, particularly black joy in the face of death and violence can be incredibly powerful. And there are people who've done a lot more studying than I have on this, but I do think that those are um, tools of uh, resistance and resilience. Um, But even things like deciding that if the world is going to treat me terribly, I'm going to treat myself well. Um, So being good with self-care and eating a healthy meal, like those kinds of small everyday joys um, are things that I have and will continue to talk with friends and family and and, and use those as examples of like, we're going to get through this and we are going to continue to, we'll have joy even in the face of this, calling out the oppression, like calling out Mm -hmm. the horrible things and the causes of this acute anxiety, but deciding it will not stop us. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Both of, both of those answers are are really helpful. Because we are winding down, I know many who are listening are probably in the process of being part of conversations about race. Our whole country, our world is involved in conversations about the racial reckoning that we're in the midst of facing our painful past and history and um, working on our relationships now in the present. How can applying systems theory help us in these conversations that are, you know, probably full of anxiety most times? conversations about race often have anxiety in them. How does systems theory help us to do better at having these conversations that we need to have and managing our anxiety within these conversations that we know we simply must have these days? What's your experience been with how this um, helps with those conversations? Yeah, I I think for me it is, um, it's locating uh, the anxiety when I walk into a room, locating the anxiety when I have a conversation, um, um, f- figuring, you know, figuring out and then asking questions. So tell me why, you know, if, if someone responds to a post that, you know, I you know post on Twitter or Facebook, help me to understand why you reacted the way you did. So for me, it's more asking the questions so that I can locate where this person's anxiety might be coming from. And so um, I, I think being able to, even beyond that, and probably even before that, controlling my own anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, um, it's Trish Taylor and Jim Harrington that talks about uh, the whole idea of the transformation of the leader precedes the transformation of the group and the organization. 
And so I am responsible for me, an anxious system. And so walking into it, making sure that it's not jumping on me so that I'm not spreading it, but to, to be able to be the calmest one in the room and uh, locate it and then begin asking questions about why, why is this triggering you, triggering you right now when I said what I said or did what I did. I think that's, that's one of the things that's been most helpful for me in, uh, in, these, uh, in these recent years. What about you, Tina? Well, I think Marvin covered it. I, <laughs> I think, you know, I would say everyone should uh, get Steve's book and um, get <laughs> Marvin's forthcoming book and and sign up for a, a TC. But I do think that there is something about, and I don't know how to say this without being cynical, when it comes to race, I think if there's no anxiety in the room, anxiety is going to show up. And mm-hmm. so that's what I'm just saying. Expect it. <laughs> well, I'm asking <laughs> just, the question. Yeah, just expect it. And then yeah. a phrase I use is lean in with love. And mm-hmm. so uh, particularly when I was uh, pastoring, you know, these are the people that I love and I love them when even when they're acting up and they love me when I'm acting up. Mm-hmm. And so that we're going to figure this out together, but make a decision ahead of time and hopefully mm-hmm. a mutual decision that regardless of how hard the conversation gets, um, we're going to continue to have the conversation and we're going to lean in towards each other with love and use as many of the tools as are available to us as possible. But it will be an awkward conversation, a little messy. Uh, you'll stumble through it, but there's going to be really beautiful depth, really amazing things that will happen if we can have that conversation. It's mm, beautiful. I think from majority culture, particularly a, a male majority, I think systems theory gives you two gifts. It gives you the gift of taking responsibility when you want to hide and blame. And then I think it also gives you the gift of of seeing reality with and without being threatened by it, hmm. being able to move into it. So to me, that's how system theory helps is you're actually able to listen to somebody's actual experience that isn't your experience and how you have intentionally or unintentionally contributed to it or benefited from it without um, having to be defensive. I think that's the gift it gives. And that's hard work, but that would be my answer from the, the male majority uh, point mm-hmm. of view. You, you're just going to ask the questions on this one, mm-hmm. Ruth. You're not going to jump in and give us your thoughts. Oh, I will if you're asking. Yeah, come on. Um, I really like this idea of radical self-responsibility. And Steve, you speak to this, um, that there is this opportunity to take real responsibility for ourselves. And to when we feel the anxiety, to, to not put it out there and project it onto anybody else. They're not doing this right because I'm feeling anxious. But to really take responsibility for myself in that moment, even things as basic as breathing. No one has mentioned breathing yet. But when you feel the anxiety to actually take a moment to breathe, to notice where the tension is in my body and try to open my hands or uncross my legs or breathe into the space of tension. And even just to say to myself, I'm going to be okay, even though this is hard and even though I'm uncomfortable and I'm not even sure I agree with everything that's being said here, I'm going to be okay, you know. And that even gives you the ability to do some of these other things, like leaning in versus leaning away, like continuing to listen to learn versus getting to be defensive, that that very first step of paying attention to the body and taking responsibility for myself in my body, even noticing the fight or flight, like I just want to get out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. But in the breathing to come back to my deeper commitment, and that is I want to stay in the room with these people, to your point, Tina, because I love them and I am committed to them. So I'm going to stay in this room that all, you know, this taking radical responsibility for myself 
even in the most uncomfortable moments, to me is it's very hopeful and it's very life giving to know that there that I have that kind of freedom. You know that I don't have to be completely tied to my own anxiety, but that I have the freedom to make really good, loving choices in these moments and lean in. So I find myself even leaning into you all right now. Like I just want to just keep being with all of you because these this has been a really important beginning. And I know it's just a beginning, Marvin and Tina in particular. I know this is just a beginning and that we're in some ways on the surface of some of the deeper things that need to be spoken of. But thanks for making such a beautiful beginning with us in this conversation and, and bringing your whole selves. It is deeply appreciated. Uh, Marvin or Tina, would you have a word for our listeners that would be a word of encouragement? Yeah, um, I think I think one of the things that uh, Tina mentioned, uh, leaning in with love, but also yeah. recognizing that this is uh, this is a journey. Mm-hmm. And even if you falter, whether the majority uh, culture or the non-majority culture, uh, get back up and keep growing and asking, your, asking yourself, what is the next brave and right thing mm-hmm. that I need to do in, uh, in this moment? And I think, that, um, I think that question will yield a lot of fruit mm-hmm. uh, as we move forward. Yeah. Thanks be to God. Bless you both. Thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. I hope that you are already finding yourself to be encouraged during these challenging days that God has resources for us. God has ways of leading us forward if we can just stay open. I also want to mention that here in the Transforming Center, we have two identical dates in the fall for an event that we call the Pursuing God's Will Together Retreat. And this retreat is all about helping leadership groups discern and do the will of God together. It's about helping them to move beyond just strategic thinking and planning to a place where we listen for the voice of God in our own lives and in our lives as leadership groups so that we can do God's will together as leaders. And so if this is a desire that's on your heart, if you have questions about how God is leading you forward as a community, then this two and a half day retreat will give your leadership group a chance to come away, to listen to God and to each other, and to discern God's way forward for you. You can find information about this in our show notes or by going to our website.